Well, I don't know if you were a fan of uh, this particular TV show, but between 2001 and 2010, so that's pretty much the first decade of the 21st century, there was a TV show that I reckon, and many people say, it sort of changed the TV thing, right? Change how TV shows were made, change how TV shows were watched. Um, the show I'm talking about is 24. Anyone, anyone fan of 24? Were fans of 24? Yeah. Um, this was a game-changing show for lots of reasons, and it is probably the most suspenseful show you will watch. In fact, it was so tense that I stopped watching after season two because I didn't think my heart could handle it. Because it's like that, isn't it? Um, I had to read up on what happened after the second season because I didn't watch it all, but apparently over eight seasons, the main character, Jack Bauer, has been abducted by the Chinese government, become addicted to heroin, saved the world from a corrupt president, been seemingly killed twice, and himself killed 225 people. Right? This is everything that's happened within, well, eight seasons. Now, what made it especially suspenseful and what changed the way that we watch TV is, of course, 24, and the whole premise of the show is 24 um, episodes, 24 um, hours. The whole thing, each season, takes place over just a day. Every minute of the show was every minute of story time. Every hour of the show was every hour of story time. And so one season only covered 24 hours. And that changed everything because, as you know, normally with TV shows and movies, it's not done in real time or it's not... You know, one minute of showtime doesn't mean necessarily one minute of story time. 24 was the first TV series that did this. It slowed time right down, and that's why it was so tense, right? Every episode, you only covered one hour of story time, and every episode ends with a cliffhanger. And you're like, what's going to happen next? And so 24 was the first show that people wanted to buy the whole season of and binge watch. Like, we're used to binge-watching nowadays, aren't we, because of Netflix and so on. But 24 was actually the first show that people decided, well, I need to binge-watch it because I need to know what happened. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, it's because the passage that we just read in Mark chapter 11 does something to time. You see, Mark is a biographer of Jesus. And the biography of Jesus, according to Mark, the biographer, takes place over about three years from the moment Jesus steps out into the public at age about 30 to when he dies and rises again at about age 33, three years. But here's the thing, right? The first three years of his life is really covered in chapters 1 to 10. So covered pretty quickly in 10 chapters. But now we're in chapter 11. And between chapters 11 and 16, what you'll find is time slows right down. In fact, chapters 11 to 16 cover just the last week of Jesus' life. You got that? Ten chapters on three years, five chapters, right? Six chapters inclusively on just one week. And what we'll find here is chapter 11, the bits that we just read, only cover three days. By the time you get to chapter 15, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks' time, it's ticking by, by the hour, It'll say the third hour and then the sixth hour. So you see, it's doing a 24. Time slows right down. So you've got to ask yourself the question, what, what is Mark, the biographer, trying to do? If three years can be covered in 10 chapters, and yet it takes six chapters just to cover one week. It shows you, doesn't it, what is important in the mind of the writer. That these last, the last week, these events of the last week, is really the climax of everything that Jesus said and taught and did. Every action, every event, every miracle, every parable finds its climax in the seven last days of his life. 
So I reckon whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, this last week of Jesus' life from chapter 11 onwards, and today we're only looking at three days of his last week, they're going to be really central stuff. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, there's going to be things here that are going to be right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And if you are a follower of Jesus, there are things here that are going to surprise you as well. I'm going to ask for God to help us um, concentrate because it's going to be, as I said, pretty hard going, these uh, verses. Um, And let's ask Jesus to speak to us through his word. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we um, hear your word, as we meet Jesus afresh, that there would be elements that surprise us, inform us, but more importantly, challenge us. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, The outline is a little bit more detailed today, um, and it's there for a reason, so follow it on if it helps you. Um, My first point, um, we're talking about great expectations. Now, normally, if um, you see four pedestrians crossing a zebra crossing, you probably wouldn't think too much about it, correct? But then if you were seeing four pedestrians cross a zebra crossing at a particular zebra crossing on a particular road in a particular city say, this city, this road, this zebra crossing, all of a sudden, it's a little bit more significant, yeah? Does anyone know what that picture is of? Abbey Road, and who are the four? The Beatles, right? Someone say the Fantastic Four, no. This isn't a Marvel, anyway. This is the Beatles album cover of their 1969 album, Abbey Road, which is a famous album, but this is an even more famous picture, So famous is it that everyone who goes to visit London, who knows about this picture, and that's a lot of people, go and try to get that kind of photo taken. Abbey Road, Zebra Crossing. So much so the council had to put in a lollipop lady or a lollipop man. And so popular that this guy will charge you four pounds to take a photo of you and your three friends. All right? Four pounds per photo. That's pretty good. That's like 12 bucks. Now, Everything that Jesus does in Mark chapter 11, these verses that we read, is like that. In other words, when Jesus walks into the, or goes into the city on a donkey, it's not just a random guy in a don- on a donkey going to the city. When he goes to the temple and he clears it out, it's not just a strange, almost violent action. When he curses a fig tree, it's not just that he's lost his mind and he got really angry because he couldn't find fruit. When he points to a mountain and he says, with faith, you can move that mountain into the sea, it's not just a big radical claim about prayer. You see, everything that Jesus says and does in these 25 verses have a background to it. Sort of like if you and three friends decide to take a photo on Abbey Road. If you know about the Beatles Abbey Road photo, you'll know that it's actually much more significant than just four people crossing a road. Everything that Jesus does here comes with great expectations that have been built up over hundreds, if not thousands of years, in that first two-thirds of our Bible called the Old Testament. So that's what I'm going to take you to, looking at two particular expectations. The first one about the Messiah, which is another word for God's promised king, what they, who they were expecting, God's promised king, and the second about the last day. So let me go. Firstly, Messiah. And I want to show you the first Old Testament passage that comes from Zechariah. And you'll see it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right, the king is going to come riding on a donkey, says Zechariah. This is a few hundred years before Jesus. And then Genesis, they're going back thousands of years now. The scepter will not depart from Judah. It's one of the tribes of the people of Israel. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. And the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. They are like the Beatles' Abbey Road cover. And so when Jesus does the action of going into a city riding on a donkey, this is in the background. You can see Jesus is deliberately stepping into the fulfillment of these prophecies about the Messiah King. So great expectations about the Messiah. The second set of great expectations has to, uh, is about the last days. Now, in Old Testament language, the last days is another way of saying the end of the world. Right, the end of human history. And what would happen in the last days was judgment. God would judge the world and God will also save his people. Judgment and salvation. And part of how God would do that in the last days was tied up with, you guessed it, with the Messiah. So these two expectations were tied together because the Messiah was to come in the last days. Where he would appear from, um, and we'll see a passage later on in Zechariah as well, would be from the Mount of Olives. So it's interesting that in verse 1, Jesus travels from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. The Messiah would come from the Mount of Olives, and that would signal that the end has come. And I'll show you the last book of the Old Testament, and this is what it says about the last days. What would the, when the Messiah comes and God comes, what would happen? Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to His where temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. The important thing to pick out there is that in the last days, God would come to the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was for hundreds of years the place where God said, if you're my people, this is where you must come to worship me. The only place you come to worship me. Because I would especially be dwelling there. I would be especially present there to hear your prayers, to forgive your sins when you offer sacrifices. That was the temple in Jerusalem. God would come to his temple, says Malachi, when the end comes. And he would make worship acceptable to him again. Now again, this is an Abbey Road photo, right? When Jesus comes to Jerusalem, where does he go? He goes straight to the temple. He's playing right into Old Testament expectations about the last days. So all of this is expected. Messiah, last days. But then the interesting thing about this passage, and probably the puzzling thing if you looked at it during the week, is of course what's unexpected. So that's my second point. Now, there are three days, as I said. The Sunday, the Monday, the Tuesday that these events cover. Mark chapter 11 just goes three days, and each day we'll see something unexpected happen. So let's go day by day. Number one, day one. So what happens is Jesus arrives to Jerusalem on the road from Jericho. Um, and as we read, we won't read it again. He passes by a village and Jesus essentially commandeers a donkey. Right? It's not quite as cool as policemen commandeering a vehicle to chase a baddie. But he does that. He gets a donkey and he knows exactly where the donkey is. He knows where it's going to be and what his disciples must do. 
and you get a little bit glimpse of how much Jesus is in control of everything, right? Sovereignty over all events. His disciples find everything exactly as he says. And so they get the donkey and he rides into the city and that has the Zechariah 9, the first passage I show you about the king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, has that in the background. And whether the crowd recognized it or not, and maybe they did, they, they start shouting Hosanna, which means save, right? So it's a term of praise, but also a term of saying, God, you know, you've come to deliver us, save us. And they're rejoicing, and that's what we call Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. So far, so good. But then you see in verse 11, something kind of puzzling happens, yeah? So he enters with his big fanfare with a crowd going crazy, and then he goes straight into the temple, but then he does nothing. It says in verse 11, he goes in, he looks around, or it's late, so he exits again and goes out of Jerusalem and spends the night elsewhere. That's it. Like, talk about an anticlimax, right? King enters his city, goes to the temple, does nothing, goes out of it again. It's, it, it's really puzzling. It's a little bit like Prince Harry, Right, he's just come to Sydney. Why did he come to Sydney? Not just to show off his new wife. It's because of the Invictus Games, which he founded. So imagine if a couple of weeks ago he'd come to Sydney, had all the photo shoot, had all the publicity, and then right before the Invictus Games decides to fly straight back to England. That would have been a huge anticlimax, right? Not even be at the opening ceremony, not even stay for the closing ceremony. That's a little bit like what Jesus does here. Enters with big fanfare, he's the king, he's arrived, and I'm going to go out again. All right? He does nothing. So that is what happens on day one. That's it. And we're left in suspense. So let's go to day two. Next day, verse 12. Jesus goes again to Jerusalem. And he's been in Bethany, which is a village just outside of Jerusalem, within walking distance. And then we get something really unexpected, right? Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree in full leaf. He sees it from a distance. He goes closer. He finds, well, there's no figs. And then he decides to curse it because it has no figs, which is a, itself a very surprising action from Jesus. Right? Jesus has lost his cool. I mean, Jesus, who is the most patient and loving person with people, gets angry at a tree. Especially in verse 13, we find out it wasn't even the season for figs. As if Jesus didn't know that. I mean, he knew exactly where the donkey was going to be the day before. How could he not know it's not the season for figs? Everyone knows it's not the season for figs. It was spring, not autumn. So what's going on there? Is Jesus lost it? Is he like when my kids were two years old? Terrible too. Some of you know exactly what that's like. You can't get something, you chuck a big tantrum. Jesus just chucked a tantrum at a tree. What is going on? And then it gets more puzzling. Verse 15, he enters the temple again. And for many people, what he does at the temple is, especially for um, people who are not Christians, they see this action of Jesus and they're really turned off by it. Jesus does something pretty violent. And these are business people trying to go about their daily business and he is there, he's overturning things. Other parts, other biographies of Jesus um, have, have him you know, taking up a whip and driving people out. He's getting violent. He disrupts everything on the day. Now, some people think that why he's doing that is because they were up to dishonest business practices. So Jesus is here standing up for you know, social justice, standing up for right business practices. These guys were obviously crooks. Now, we think that because it helps soften what Jesus does. Only if you look at it, nothing here says that what they were doing was either illegal or dishonest. In fact, to give you a bit of background, what they were doing was necessary. 
You see, this was the temple where people, pilgrims from all over Israel, all over the place, came on a pilgrimage. And because you're traveling long distances, you couldn't bring your cattle and your sheep with you. It's very hard. Most people didn't. And you needed animals to sacrifice. And so people were there selling animals that you could buy there so you could then take it to the priest to get it sacrificed. So they were providing a service to make temple sacrifice possible. Now, being Jews and being um, Jews who had certain cleanliness laws about who they interacted with, they couldn't just use Roman money. So there was special temple money that they used. But how did they get the temple money? Well, they had to exchange Roman money for t- temple money, and that's what their money changes were there. So it's not like money changes were necessarily being dishonest. doesn't say that. They were providing a service as well. In verse 16, it talks about Jesus was stopping the people bringing merchandise in. Now, when we read merchandise, what are we thinking? We're thinking souvenirs, right? We're thinking you go to like the Great Wall of China and there's people trying to flog, you know, souvenirs. That's not actually what's going on here because the word there, merchandise, is probably not the best translation. It's just the word vessels. And when you read temple and vessels, you're thinking the vessels that priests use to carry stuff, to offer sacrifices. These were temple furnishings, sacrificial furnishings, And Jesus didn't allow them to come in. You put it all together, basically what Jesus was doing was completely disrupting temple life. That's what he was doing. These people were offering a necessary and legitimate service, and Jesus was completely disrupting it on purpose, every part of it, so that that day nothing really could have happened. So what's Jesus doing here? Why was he getting so worked up about something that happened for hundreds of years at the temple? Why did he curse the fig tree? Well, the key to this, I am going to give you some answers, not just going to ask you questions. The key to this is actually the structure. See, if we peek ahead to day three, which we'll look at in a moment, you'll see that they come across the fig tree again, and the fig tree, when they see it the next day, is withered to the roots. And so you've got a structure here of fig tree incident, temple incident, back to the fig tree. Now Mark, the writer of Mark, is really, he loves doing this. Scholars have even given it a name, right? And we've come across it again and again where he goes A and then B and then back to A. Do you remember what it's called? It's called a sandwich. And Mark is so famous to it, scholars call it the Markin sandwich, right? You've got two pieces of bread, the fig tree, and the middle, you've got the temple. And when Mark does that, A, B, A, or bread, meat, bread, the most important part of a sandwich is, of course, not the bread. Well, not according to me. And not according to Mark, it's the stuff in the middle, right? And so the center of the structure, fig tree, temple, fig tree, is the temple. So what Jesus does at the temple is the key to understanding But also, when he does a a sandwich thing, what's in the middle helps explain the things on the side. So you've got to understand the fig tree and the cursing of the fig tree in light of the temple. Cut a long story short, what we've got here isn't Jesus having a tantrum at the fig tree. Because the fig tree actually is, in a sense, a symbol of the temple. That's how it's working out. So when Jesus curses the fig tree... He's doing in action what he does when he clears out the temple. Do you see what I mean? The cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple are really two sides to the same coin. The 
fig tree incident isn't Jesus losing his temper. He's enacting a parable, if you like. So, let me show you uh, Micah. Oh, where's my slides? Um, Micah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, says this. What misery is mine. I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. The godly have been swept from the land, not one upright man remains. You see what it's saying? When God sees his people, he compares it to fruitless figs. When he sees that there's no godliness, that's like not finding figs. Um, And in case you're wondering, there's another passage that also puts it like this. I'm not able to click through now. Jeremiah 8. God says, In judgment I will take away their harvest, says the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, there will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken away from them. You see? When God pictures judgment in the Old Testament, it's about no figs. That's what Jesus was doing. He's actually enacting out a judgment. When the Messiah comes to his capital, when God comes to his temple, instead of finding godliness and purity and fruit, he finds that his people and their worship fruitless. And so the cursing of the fig tree is a way of enacting that judgment on the temple. Now, just as an aside, because you're like, but the figs weren't in season. Why was he even looking for figs? Well, here is where a little bit of horticultural knowledge that Wikipedia gives you will help. Fig trees apparently crop twice during the year. The main crop is later in the year in autumn. That's the figs you'll buy in the shops, the good, sweet, juicy ones. Mark says it's not season for figs. He means the main crop. But also, many fig trees will have an early crop in spring. They're actually called breba figs, all right? It's actually a thing. And when spring comes and the leaves are in bloom, often they will sprout these early figs. They're not as juicy, good to eat. Uh, They're not the ones you usually find when you go to the shops and buy them, but they're still good to eat. And so often, travelers who know about this will try and find some early figs. That's what Jesus was doing. All right, Mark 11 happened in spring, we know that. So it's not the season for the main crop, but it is certainly reasonable to expect early figs because the leaves were out. So Jesus, like other hungry travelers, he sees that fig tree. It looks like it might have some early figs. He goes there, finds that it doesn't. But again, remember, this is just a parable, an acted parable. Fig tree stands for the temple. So when Jesus 